0: Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the freedom trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 144, Aeroplane Fever. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about sky jockeys, knights of the air, and man-birds. Those are just a few of the terms that newspapers around the country used to describe the early aviators who converged on Boston in September of 1910. The first Harvard-Boston Aero Meet was the largest and most exciting air show the world had ever seen, and it left Boston gripped by a bad case of aeroplane fever. Famous pilots from the U.S. and around the world, including even Wilbur Wright, would compete for cash prizes in a number of categories. Those categories included a high-stakes race to Boston Light in the Outer Harbor. Tens of thousands of Bostonians gawked at the spectacle, reporters provided breathless coverage and the military watched carefully to see if these newfangled flying machines could ever be useful in warfare. The event was so successful that the organizers extended it by two days beyond what was originally scheduled, then follow-up meets were scheduled for the next two years. But before we talk about the Harvard-Boston Aero Meet, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is The Race Underground. A few months ago, we featured the book by Doug Most that details the race between Boston and New York for the first subway system. We just discovered the PBS American Experience documentary based on the book, which was released in 2017, and which is described as follows. In the late 19th century, as America's teeming cities grew increasingly congested, the time had come to replace the nostalgic horse-drawn trolleys with a faster, cleaner, safer, and more efficient form of transportation. Ultimately, it was Boston, a city of so many firsts, that overcame a litany of engineering challenges, the greed-driven interests of businessmen, and the great fears of its citizenry to construct America's first subway. Based in part on Doug Most's acclaimed book of the same name, The Race Underground tells the dramatic story of an invention that changed the lives of millions. Love it or hate it, the tea is intrinsic to the Boston experience. To give context for the film, PBS offers several interesting articles and features on related subject matter. Benjamin M. Schmidt's article, What the Maps Miss, examines how subway maps have led city dwellers to develop mental maps that are very different from geography. And it includes an overlay of a distorted T-map on Google Maps to illustrate his points. If you consider yourself to be a master of trivia, you can take Thomas Edison's 146-question intelligence test, reportedly given to anyone who wanted to work for him. We knew the answer to the first question, but it quickly went downhill from there. The questions include, Where is the Imperial Valley, and what's it noted for? What is artificial silk made from? What is the weight of air in a room 20 by 30 by 10 feet? Who was Plutarch? Along with Thomas Edison's test and tea trivia, the PBS website has digital shorts on the blizzard of 1888 which was arguably one of the biggest catalysts for constructing the subway. And you can take a look inside the MBTA Signal Shop. The film's available on Netflix, Amazon, iTunes, and PBS. We'll have a link in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a brown bag launch at the Massachusetts Historical Society this Friday, August 9th. As you know by now, increase in cotton mather cast a long shadow over the early history of Boston. Through his prolific writing, Cotton is a source for researching the religion, history, and even science of the Bay Colony in the 17th and 18th centuries. This lunchtime talk will focus on one of Cotton's most influential religious writings, and it will be led by Dr. Jan Steverman, who is a professor of the History of American Christianity at the Heidelberg University in Germany. The talk is titled, Cotton Mather's Biblia Americana, 1693-1728. to America's First Bible Commentary and Storehouse of Early Modern Learning. And it draws on Professor Steverman's recent book exploring Mather's landmark work. Here's how the MHS describes the event. With the ongoing edition of Cotton Mather's massive Biblia Americana, scholars of early America are now gaining access to the first comprehensive Bible commentary produced in the colonies. This talk will give an introduction to the riches of the Biblia as a source for the study of colonial New England and its place in early modern intellectual history. The event begins at noon on Friday. It's free and open to the public. Just pack a lunch to enjoy while Dr. Steverman is giving his talk. Before we move on with the show, we want to take a moment to thank our latest Patreon supporter, Mark H., and everyone who sponsors us on Patreon. One thing that your support has done is allowed us to subscribe to the Boston Globe's archives. I first stumbled across the topic of the Harvard-Boston Arrow Meet when Squantum Point was our historic site of the week back in November of 2017. I put the topic on our to-do list, but I was afraid that we'd never find enough sources to do the topic justice. Once we had access to the Globe's archives, I was able to find hundreds of articles. We'd love to subscribe to some more newspaper archives, as well as JSTOR, which is an online repository of articles from academic journals. If you'd like to join Mark and our supporters and help us meet that goal, you can see the membership reward starting at just $2 a month at patreon.com slash hubhistory, or by going to hubhistory.com and clicking on Support Us. Thanks again to all our existing sponsors. Now it's time for this week's main topic. A picture on the front page of the Boston Globe shows John F. Fitzgerald, better known to his constituents and to history as Honey Fitz the famous Boston mayor, U.S. congressman, and JFK's grandfather. He's dressed in a proper shirt and tie, sporting a pair of leather driving gloves, but he's bareheaded, which was odd for 1910. In the picture, he's squinting toward the camera and grinning broadly as he peers out from behind another man's back. The other figure is English pilot Claude Graham White, and the two men are seated in White's Farman biplane. The lead story in The Globe gushes... Mayor John F. Fitzgerald of Boston flying through the air at a speed of more than 40 miles an hour. President Taft seated in an automobile looking on at the sensational performance. The band playing Sweet Adeline. The crowd of 30,000 people cheering and looking on in amazement. And over it all, Ralph Johnstone pushing his way through the clouds in a right biplane. Well, that was just one feature of the afternoon's entertainment at the Harvard-Boston Aero Meet yesterday afternoon, which was not on the program. The mayor himself wrote an editorial describing what it had felt like to soar above the city he administered. It was a remarkable feeling of contentment instead of one of excitement. Sailing with the wind, there was no apparent motion, but when we encountered currents, the air seemed to get cold. We felt the cross currents considerably, especially over Commercial Point. Possibly the only feeling of discomfort I had was in coming down, and that was slight. It was very similar to that experience in an express elevator coming down the shaft of a high building, only intensified. Some may think it strange that the mayor of the city of Boston should take flight in a biplane, but I assure you I was very pleased to accept Mr. Graham White's invitation to fly, for it is my opinion that every man should take advantage of every opportunity to learn about every great advancement of science, particularly when it is of such vital interest as the aeroplane is. A distinct pleasure and honor conferred upon me in connection with the flight was the congratulations of President Taft. He is a bit of a joker, for he said to me, Well, Fitz old man, I knew some people tried to get rid of you, but I did not think they would do it this way. And I said in reply, Mr. President, I assure you this was not put up by the Republican leaders of Massachusetts. One has to imagine that President Taft was a bit jealous. While Democrat Honey Fitz was alternately described as sprightly, impish, or pixie-like, the Republican president was notoriously corpulent. It's possible that his mass was beyond the lifting power of the rudimentary planes available in 1910. With this flight, Honey Fitz was joining an elite club. In 1910, most people in the world had never even seen an aeroplane, much less flown in one. The Wright brothers had made their famous flight at Kitty Hawk just seven years before and the technology of flight was only slowly evolving beyond their rudimentary design that leaned heavily on repurposed bicycle parts. So when dozens of planes flown by pilots from around the world converged on a field in Quincy in 1910, people in Boston went a little bit nuts. Coverage of the Harvard-Boston Aero Meet dominated the headlines for weeks, from preparation for the event to daily coverage of flights during the meet to follow up afterwards. On each day of the 10-day air show, twenty to 30,000 people paid the admission fee to visit the airfield, while tens of thousands more watched from outside. The Boston Globe estimated that 100,000 people watched on many days, lining the airfield fences, crowding the beaches, packing chartered steamers on the harbor, and craning their necks from rooftops in Boston. One article said, The aviators, with their wonderful creations, proved more of a magnet for humanity yesterday than on Saturday. And it was not a very hard matter to estimate that more than 50,000 people spent the greater part of the day rubbering on Squantum alone. Of this number, there were about 25,000 within the aviation field. However, those figures do not begin to cover the total number interested enough in the aeroplanes to watch them. For the Boston shore from Neponset clear away around even to South Boston, people gathered on wharves, shores, sheds, houses, and anywhere that gave a vantage point from which to get a glimpse of the flyers. And out in the bay, another big crowd was gathered in boats of every description. So if one were able to count heads from Squandum Point away around to City Point, it would probably be found that the fringe of humanity numbered in the vicinity of 100,000 people. Trains carried thousands. So did electric cars. Motor cars were much in evidence, with hundreds more. And Dobbins, young and old, hitched to one-horse chases, wagons, carry-alls, and about everything in the way of vehicles hauled multitudes in the direction of the field. This incredible spectacle was the brainchild of the Harvard Aeronautical Society, at a time when many people thought that aviation was going to join football and rowing as the latest athletic craze at Ivy League colleges. The Society was founded in November of 1909 with the goal to promote the advance of aerial navigation and contribute both in theory and practice to the conquest of the air. After the first few meetings, they could boast a membership of 300 Harvard undergraduates, graduates, and faculty. Early meetings were devoted to lectures on the physics involved in aerodynamics, the mechanical principles of heavier-than-air flight, and practical considerations of building flying machines. They also watched a documentary about planes, which the Harvard Graduate's magazine breathlessly described as a cinematographic exhibit of aeroplanes in flight requiring 300 feet of film. Before long, the club's interest turned from the theoretical to the practical. In January of 1910, they made an announcement that was picked up by the wire services and printed in newspapers around the country. Harvard would be the first American college to build and fly its own flying machine. The story said, Plans of the machine have already been completed. When it comes time to manufacture the various parts needed in the construction of the aeroplane, the work will be done by undergraduates in the Harvard Engineering and Scientific Departments, and the assembling of the machine will also be under their charge. By July, the Harvard One airplane was ready for testing, though it had mixed results. On the first day of testing, the contraption failed to achieve flight, and on almost every successive day of testing, it was damaged in some way. On July 11th, the story said, Harvard Aeroplane No. 1 made two fairly successful flights on Soldier's Field today. In the first, the machine traveled 50 yards. Fifteen minutes later, the machine went an estimated distance of 150 yards. During the first flight, an altitude of 4 or 5 feet was attained, and in the second flight, about 8 feet. When descending from the second flight, the machine landed on the left rear wheel, breaking it and disabling the machine for further use today. The following day, wire services reported, In the latest attempt, the flyer covered 100 yards at about 5 to 8 feet from the ground. This was preceded by a trip of 50 yards. As the ship was making good speed toward the bleachers, it collapsed landing on the left rear wheel and straining a wire. In a subsequently attempted flight, this wire snapped. In March of that year, the Harvard Aeronautical Society joined the Aero Club of North America. This qualified them to compete against other schools and clubs in domestic and international flying competitions. The first major heavier-than-air aviation meet had been held in Reims, France, the previous August, and there was a lot of excitement around where the next major event would occur. In January of 1910, Los Angeles hosted an arrow meet, but it wasn't well attended, and it couldn't compete with the international flair of the French meet. The Harvard Club immediately threw its hat in the ring, offering to host a U.S. meet at Soldiers Field, where the university's athletic fields are today. The 1910 Harvard Graduates magazine, which went to press just weeks before the meet, gave this rationale for hosting it. The purpose of the meet is to obtain money for the society to build machines, conduct scientific aeronautic experiments, and to advance the science of aeronautics in general, and the interest in aeronautics at Harvard. The more money the society can get from this meet, the more useful it can be in the promotion of aeronautics and the construction of safe and efficient machines. The proceeds of the meet go to the society only. An aeronautic club at the present time might be either a sportsman's club, as the shooting club, or a scientific organization as the engineering club. It is the express purpose to make this society of the latter type. For that reason, membership is open to all Harvard men. They weren't the only outfit that wanted to host the next great international flying event, as a tiny sidebar in the March 10th Boston Globe alludes. Although the Washington Aero Club has not yet given up hope of securing the great international meet which is scheduled for next September, They are planning to hold one of their own, at which it is expected many of the foreign aero experts will appear. Competition to host the event got so hot that it led to a rift in the U.S. aviation community, as reported in a May 1910 Wire story. When the Board of Governors of the Aero Club of America meets this afternoon to decide formally upon a place for holding the International Aviation Contest and to award the contract for financing the meet, it is not likely that representatives of the various aero clubs throughout America will be present, following the split which has resulted in the foundation of a rival aero club. The clubs which were formerly affiliated with the Aero Club of America and which have now broken away to form the American Aeronautic Association are the aero organizations of Indianapolis, St. Louis, Baltimore, and Harvard, Illinois, Washington, and Buffalo. The Aero Club of America declares that the Association of -of Out-of-Town Clubs will in no way affect the international aviation meet, plans for which will be completed this afternoon. Because the show in REMS had drawn so much international attention, it wasn't just a question of what U.S. city would host the next great international aero meet. In May of 1910, an editorial and the Woonsocket Call made it clear that Harvard was also competing with European cities. Harvard's Aeronautical Society is endeavoring to interest prominent aviators in an airship meet. It would be a pity to let this exhibition of interest in a pertinent subject fail for lack of support. The United States produced the aeroplane, which is apparently the airship of the future. Yet there has not been here anywhere near such a development of interest in manned flight as has been seen in Europe. In July, Harvard edged out the American competition, And on July 9th, the Harvard Aeronautical Society and Mayor Fitzgerald made it official, with the Boston Globe reporting, Mayor Fitzgerald was today notified by the officers of the Harvard Aeronautical Society that the Society plans to have the aeronautical meet in Soldiers Field Stadium during the first 10 days in September, if it can secure the field for the purpose at that time. It will have the assistance in arranging the meet of the Aero Club of New England. The meet has already secured the endorsement of the National Council of the Aero Club of America. The original plan called for a fee to be charged for admission to the grounds at Soldiers Field, with pilots taking off from the field and exhibits relating to planes, dirigibles, and balloons on display inside Harvard Stadium. There was only one problem. Soldiers Field was too small. When the Harvard Club had been testing a single glider, they could take off and land, or crash land at least, from Soldiers Field. As plans for the arrow meet became more elaborate, it quickly became clear that there wasn't nearly enough open space for multiple flying machines to operate in. Luckily, there was a large tract of level, undeveloped land that was only about six and a half miles away as the crow flies, or as the biplane flies. At the mouth of the Neponset River, a broad, low peninsula called Squantum Point rose from the tidal marshes. For centuries, its primary use had been to graze cattle on the marsh grasses, but since the 1880s, development had been creeping closer. A short distance away, the Atlantic Land Company acquired a huge tract of coastal real estate, which they subdivided for building lots in a way that seems very familiar today. An 1894 directory of local businesses describes the outfit. There never was a time in the history of the world when men attached so much importance to the securing of homes of their own. As at the present day. And thanks to the spirit of modern enterprise, it is no longer such a difficult matter to secure houses and lands as it used to be. The Atlantic Land Company may properly be referred to in this connection as the owner of property in the north precinct of the town of Quincy and within the six mile radius of Boston, which they've laid out into building lots and offer the same for sale on the most advantageous terms. Situated on Quincy Bay with its attractions of boating and fishing, with the cooling breezes from the ocean, Quincy combines many of the advantages of the seaside along with other features, making it a very desirable place for a permanent residence. On the line of the Old Colony Railroad with frequent and quick train service and low fares, it offers great inducements to businessmen who desire a quiet and pleasant habitation away from the noise and bustle of the city. That access to the Old Colony Rail line, with its new Atlantic station at the outskirts of the soon-to-be airfield, was a huge bonus to the organizers of the Aero Meet. They predicted that the railroads would run special excursion trains to Boston from all the major cities in New England, as well as New York, Chicago, and points in Canada. This sudden abundance of tourists would be able to access the new field by automobile or rail, and a new electric trolley line was laid from Atlantic Station to the gates of the airfield. The Globe announced routes to the new site by automobile, via Everett Square or Fields Corner, By elevated train from Dudley and then by trolley, by trolley all the way, or by steam train to Atlantic, with a trolley or motorboat ride to the airfield from Neponset Bridge. With the meet now scheduled to open on September 3rd, the move to Squantum Point was announced on August 7th. In less than one month, a new airport would have to be built, spectator facilities would need to be erected, and new roads and trolley tracks would have to be laid down. The next day's Globe commented on the Herculean effort that would be required. The tallest kind of hustling will have to be done by everybody connected with the coming Harvard-Boston Aero meet to get the grounds at Atlantic in shape for the opening day, September 3rd. That day falls on a Saturday, so there won't be quite four weeks in which to do the work. But big as the job is, the management has no fears, and there is little doubt but everything will be in readiness for the opening day. The plans are in readiness, and work will begin today. The two most important things are the building of a garage for aeroplanes about 600 feet long and 50 feet wide. This is something of a contract in itself, but it is not all by any means. A grandstand will have to be erected that will seat about 20,000 people. The grounds will have to be fenced in, and a getaway of about 1,000 feet in front of the grandstand, from which the aeroplanes will start, will have to be put in shape. But there was nothing to interfere with the work, and the field itself will not require much, if any, preparation. It is practically all right as it is. The grandstand will look toward the north at Squantum Point, with Quincy Bay on one side and Dorchester Bay on the other. The getaway will run from the grandstand almost due north. The new boulevard, which runs along the shore, passes one into the field and makes the southern boundary. The road on which the electric cars run to Squantum Point will make the eastern boundary after it crosses the boulevard. The northern and western sides are bounded by water. In all, the field occupies about 500 acres. A week later, the Globe reported on progress. These are busy days at the Harvard-Boston Aviation Field in Squantum. A small army of men is at work on the grounds, preparing them for the coming meeting. Engineers, carpenters, shovelers, and laborers of all descriptions are hustling every minute. Tip carts drawn by single horses and pairs are almost constantly on the move. Manager A.D. Claflin has secured as many of the tip carts as possible, and the work of grading the field is progressing rapidly. A gravel bank in one part of the grounds is being leveled, and the material taken from it is being used to elevate the grade along the water's edge and to build an inclined road. Every man and team available for miles around has been put on this work. Lumber has been secured for the grandstand, which will accommodate about 20,000 persons, and the work of its construction will begin at once. The location is an ideal one for the purpose for which it was secured, and it is thought that more than 30,000 will be able to watch the competition at this point. It's amazing how quickly things could be built back then, because just a few days later, observers were bragging that the new airfield at Squantum, or Atlantic, was the finest in the land. A story on August 17th said, This is the finest aviation field in America, said Captain Thomas S. Baldwin, the greatest all-round flyer in the world yesterday afternoon, when he had seen the new Harvard Aviation Field at Atlantic. I am not certain, he continued, but it is the greatest aviation field in the world. The conditions here are ideal for flying with heavier-than-air machines. It is so close to the water and there are so few hills around that it ensures a stability of atmospheric conditions not possible in any other field I have ever seen. Clifford B. Harmon, the wealthy amateur aviator and aeronaut, who is chairman of the Council of the National Aero Club, gave it as his opinion that the Harvard aviation field was unequaled. He said, You not only have the greatest aviation field here I have ever seen, but it's my belief that you are going to have here in Boston in September the greatest aviation meet the world has ever seen, and I am not accepting the great international meet at REMS in France last year. Already, your meet is attracting more attention than even the coming international meet in October. One way to get aviators interested in attending the meet, and to drum up excitement among the public to attend, was to offer cash prizes. After all, this was a competition. An international aero meet, not some lowly local air show. The Harvard Crimson cataloged the prize money that the members and sponsors of the Harvard Aeronautical Society had put up. Speed, $6,000. Altitude, $6,000. Duration, $4,000. Distance, $4,000. Slow lap, $1,500. Getaway, 150 Accuracy, $750. Dropping bombs on dummy battleships. Speed, altitude, duration, and distance are fairly self-evident. The slow lap prize was added because one of the sponsors was interested in how slowly planes could fly without stalling. The getaway was basically a quick takeoff prize awarded to the plane that traveled the shortest distance from the point where the wheels started moving to the point where they left the ground, and then stayed off the ground long enough to circle the airfield. The Accuracy Prize was awarded to the plane that touched down the closest to a designated mark on the field. And the prize category for dropping bombs on dummy battleships was, well, exactly what it sounds like. The pilots would fly over a scale model of a modern battleship, and they were given plaster bombs to carry up and drop by hand from an altitude of 100 feet or more. Whoever got the most bombs into the smokestacks of the ship over the course of the 10-day meet won. On July 28, the Boston Globe announced a $10,000 purse for the aviator in any sort of craft, who made the quickest flight from Soldier's Field to Boston Light on Little Brewster Island in the Outer Harbor, and back. It's tricky to convert historical amounts into today's money, but online calculators say that this prize would be almost $270,000 today. Between the high stakes and the visibility from being promoted by the Globe, the Boston Light race quickly became the centerpiece event of the 1910 meet with the lighthouse keeper enlisted to make sure that each competitor properly made their lap outside the radius of the light, and the crew of the Point Allerton life-saving station standing by to telephone progress reports back to officials at the airfield. Less than two weeks after it was announced, the $10,000 Boston Light race had to be altered. When the aero meet was moved from Soldier's Field to Squantum, the August 7th Globe described what this meant for the big prize. The Boston Globe's $10,000 cash prize contest for the fastest flight from Soldiers Field to Boston Light and returning without stops will be seen to much better advantage for the new site than it could be from the old. The contestants for this prize will have to cover the distance between Boston Light and Soldiers Field as originally proposed, but of course it will be done in a new and even more picturesque way than was first proposed. Now, the start will be made from Atlantic, over a triangular course with Soldiers Field at one end of the long line of the triangle, And Boston Light at the other end. The start and finish of the flight will be at Atlantic, but the aviators must circle the stadium at Soldiers Field and Boston Light in their flight, so they will have to pass over Boston either way and over Boston Harbor and a portion of Massachusetts Bay. This triangular lap would cover a total distance of about 27 miles. On August 30th, the course was altered again so that most of the flying would happen over the empty harbor instead of overcrowded neighborhoods probably not a bad idea given the frequency of crashes in those days. This third course called for flyers to complete a lap around the new two-mile aviation course at Squantum, fly out and make a lap around Boston Light, return to the field, then fly out and make a lap around the Massachusetts State House. Then they'd return to the field again and complete another lap around the two-mile course. All told, it was advertised as 28.78 miles to be completed non-stop. Not a big deal today when flights out of Logan Airport pass Boston Light after about two minutes if they're on the right flight path. Back in 1910, though, it was a very big deal. At the time, airplane flights were often measured in feet rather than miles. It was one more way to drum up interest and boost attendance at the meet. With the prizes, date, and revised location for the Air Extravaganza set, it was time to promote the event the Harvard Aeronautical Society produced a set of beautiful posters that show a monoplane and two models of biplanes soaring through a perfect summer sky over Boston Light. Ads ran in all the local papers for weeks before the show and every day during it. Alongside the ads promoting admission to the grounds at Squantum, there were ads for steamboats from the Bayline Wharf and Rose Wharf to watch the festivities from the water, automobile rentals to reach the airfield easier, cigars to smoke while you watched, and cafes to eat in after the Arrow meet. Most important of all was the promotional coverage carried by the Globe. With the Boston Light Prize, they had a $10,000 stake in the success of the Arrow meet. From the time they announced the prize until the show was over, the Boston Globe carried stories about the Harvard-Boston Arrow meet every day for months. Most days, they found room on the front page, and even when they didn't, there were stories on the inside pages. This coverage helped convince the wire services to pick up stories about the event as national news, and it drove Boston into a state of near frenzy, to the point that the front page on August 26th announced that Boston was suffering from an attack of aeroplane fever. This sudden epidemic meant that spectators would be willing to pay to watch the show. The basic admission fee was $1 per day to enter the grounds. If anyone wanted to sit in the newly constructed grandstands, that would cost an extra 50 cents. The August 14th Globe outlined the luxury options available to those willing to pony up a little extra. Stationed in front of the grandstand, and separated from it by a clearing of about 100 feet in depth, will be 30 boxes, seating 12 each. These may be had for $250 for the season, or throughout the meet. Any that have not been taken at the time the meet opens will be disposed of day by day, but at the rate applications for boxes during the entire meet are coming in, it's not expected that there will be any left to dispose of in this way. Provision will be made for placing in a row, side by side, 100 automobiles along what's considered the most important part of the run. These will command a fine view of the starting and finishing of all the flights, whether of aeroplane, dirigible, or spherical balloons. Each one of these automobile spaces may be had for $120 for the season, with an additional price of $1 per head for each occupant of the machine. Just back of this will be a parking space where 500 automobiles may be accommodated each day for $5 a day, with an additional charge of $1 admission per head for each occupant of the machine. So there were standing room tickets, bleacher seats, skyboxes, and drive-in theater-style seating as well as regular old parking spots. Some of the spectators who came to the 1910 Harvard-Boston Aero Meet had purely practical reasons to be interested in the latest advances in aviation. Boston Police Department Deputy Superintendent Watts was concerned about what the latest crop of safe crackers would be able to get away with if they ever got their hands on airplanes. Telling the Globe, "Blowing open a safe and getting possession of its contents do not trouble the cracksmen of today, but the matter of getting away is a serious problem with them." They are desperate and will shoot to kill any person who offers a menace to their success. But they like to get away without resorting to violence. Unless something is done to prevent these flying machines from getting into the hands of cracksmen, believe me, I will not be surprised to be told some morning that cracksmen have landed in some obscure country town from an aeroplane the night before, robbed the local bank or post office, and then flown away in their machine, taking their plunder with them. Of course, it wasn't just law enforcement who were wondering what the new aeroplanes could do. The U.S. military, and armies and navies around the world, could see the potential to use planes for transport, observation, and attack. About a week before the Harvard-Boston meet opened, Captain C.A. Blakely, of the U.S. Navy's 1st Torpedo Division stationed at Newport, got these orders. Navy Department, Washington, August 26, 1910. Sir. The Harvard Aeronautical Society will hold Harvard-Boston Aviation Meet at Boston, September 3rd to 14th, 1910. One of the objects of this meet is to bring out the actual possibilities of the aeroplane as an offensive weapon in war, and prizes are to be offered for accuracy in hitting a suitable target with objects dropped from the aeroplanes. You will proceed with the division under your command to Boston, arriving September 1st and remaining until the close of the aviation meet, on or about September 13th, when you will return to your present station. Upon arrival at Boston, you will report to the Commandant of the Navy Yard and will arrange for the patrol of the aviation course by the vessels under your command in accordance with the wishes of the Harvard Aeronautical Society, as far as it may be practicable to do so. During the maneuvers, you and the officers under your command will carefully observe and report on the maneuvers of the aeroplanes with particular reference to their possible utilization as offensive weapons in naval warfare or as scouting machines. Very respectfully, R.F. Nicholson acting Secretary of the Navy. In his final report to the Secretary, Blakely dismissed the practicality of the dirigible, deemed the monoplane promising for future development, and praised the right biplane as the most suitable current flying machine for military use. In particular, he was impressed with aeroplanes as potential vehicles for aerial reconnaissance and for direct attack of ground targets. In regard to recon, he wrote, as a scouting machine, the aeroplane appealed to me very strongly. In a slow-moving aeroplane, an observer could get all the information to be had concerning location of ships, coastline fortifications, bodies of men, and such like, and could be practically immune from interference by the enemy. A camera could be used to great advantage, and the installation of a small wireless set capable of communicating 10 or 15 miles is entirely possible. I had the pleasure of accompanying Mr. Charles Willard in a flight in his Curtis special. During this flight, while at an altitude of about 400 feet, not only could I see clearly the outlines of everything in the vicinity of the coastline of Squantum Point and of the islands in the near vicinity spread before me as clearly as if they had been drawn on a blueprint, if I had had cross-ruled paper and a pencil, I could have traced in these outlines with ease and a fair degree of accuracy. I could not fail to grasp the location of prominent points with reference to surrounding objects. This was impressed upon me as I passed over one of the grandstands, when I noted the peculiar angles which the other ones made with the one directly under me. Had I been standing on the ground, I could not have told this angle within two or three points. The sensation produced by an aeroplane flight is quite naturally different from those attending all other means of locomotion. In fact, it is quite indescribable. The dizzy sensation that I've often felt while standing on top of a high building or precipice was entirely absent, and I thoroughly enjoyed the flight. The captain was less enthusiastic about the possibility of using planes to attack targets on the ground. One hopes that he had retired long before Pearl Harbor because he just couldn't imagine that the aeroplane would ever pose a serious threat to a battleship. One of the most spectacular performances was the bomb dropping. The outline of a battleship was marked out with whitewash on the field, the funnels about 14 feet in diameter representing bullseyes. Plaster of Paris bombs were dropped from a height of not less than 100 feet and in some cases, bullseyes were made. This phase of the bomb dropping was very pleasing to the spectators, but in my opinion, was of little value in demonstrating the utility of the airplane as a weapon to be used against battleships, as ample protection could easily be provided against a hit, and the aeroplanes, at a height where there would be a probability of hitting the battleship, would be well within reach of rifles and shrapnel. In this connection, it must be remembered that what goes up must come down. And shrapnel and rifle bullets may become a menace to one's own forces. And for this reason, some sort of pyrotechnic bomb set to explode at a great height might be utilized. The chance of hitting a battleship or any restricted target of reasonable dimensions from a height sufficient to ensure the aviator immunity from injury by the battleship's weapons is very small. Future development of the aeroplane may give reasonable ground for believing that there is efficiency in the aeroplane as a bomb thrower where the target is more or less restricted. Despite his skepticism of some elements of the meet, Captain Blakely concluded his report to the Secretary of the Navy by saying, All who came to the grounds as skeptics went away marveling. Blakely would be far from the only observer to marvel at the spectacle to be seen at Squansom. In the last few days before the meet opened, fans were starstruck as the most famous names in aviation began visiting the airfield, getting the lay of the land, and putting the finishing touches on their flying machines. Among the most famous visitors were Walter Brookins, Clifford Harmon, Claude Graham-White, Glenn Curtis, and Wilbur Wright himself. Each professional pilot also had a ground crew of mechanics to make sure their machines were in good shape before each flight, and there were about eight professional teams at first. Along with the pros, a large group of amateurs began setting up shop on the day before the meet opened. It seems like pretty much anyone who owned a plane and could find a way to ship it to Quincy was streaming into Atlantic Field. I say owned a plane, because the plan to have eight of the nation's largest balloons take part in the meet had been scrapped when the aeronauts realized that the prevailing winds at Squantum would almost certainly carry their crafts out over the ocean, to certain doom. An exception was made for dirigibles, which are rigid balloons that can steer under their own power. Think of the Goodyear blimp, but much more primitive. The most famous dirigible of the 1910 Harvard-Boston Aero Meet belonged to Cromwell Dixon, Dixon was 18 years old, and he had built the airship himself, making a splash at some air shows in the Midwest. He had promised to fly from Squantum to the Statehouse two days before the meet officially opened, but his plans had to be scrapped due to bad weather. A persistent rain kept his dirigible grounded, and it kept the heavier-than-air pilots from running test flights. The next day, he made the first flight from the field. As the rain came down, the professionals tinkered with their machines, and the fans clamored to finally see some flying. Dixon trotted out in the rain, cast off his tethers, and fired up the engine. Soon, he had made a few laps around the field, but it was still too dicey to head for the state house. He did manage to inspire Claude Graham White to take his monoplane up to keep the people happy. Here's how the Globe described that first flight. Graham White rose like a partridge from the ground, swept up to a level of about 800 feet, and in an ever-widening circle soared over Quincy Bay and the islands in the harbor, over Dorchester Bay, almost to South Boston, then over Savin Hill and the Ponset, and straight over the field again. And in a shorter circle on a lower level, he swooped down with the grace of a gull and alighted at almost exactly the spot from which he started. It was such a clean, such a perfect, such an imposing flight, all done so naturally and with such absolute certainty and masterfulness that the 1,000 or more people on the field gave a cheer— rushed toward the cool, smiling young man as he stepped from his machine and almost swept them off his feet in their enthusiasm. Nothing like this flight by Graham White in a Blerio monoplane had ever been seen in the United States before, and it amazed even those who were thoroughly familiar with the birdmen who fly in biplanes. It amazed them because it was so much like the real thing, a bird in flight. For that is exactly what this monoplane looks like, a great, soaring bird traveling at a speed of between 50 and 60 miles an hour. Graham White was in the air exactly four minutes and a half, but they were precious minutes to all those who had been working for weeks over this meet to see somebody do just one thing—fly. On September 3rd, however, the weather cleared for a while, and the meet opened. All the professionals and some of the amateurs got their craft up in the air, though Clifford Harmon wrecked his biplane when one wheel stuck in the mud while he was taking off. They went through the motions of competing in the different prize events, which a wire story summarized pretty succinctly. Summarizing the events of the day, there was one entry in the bomb dropping contest, two for speed, three for endurance, and three for distance over a course which was one and three-quarter miles in length. The crowd didn't seem to care how fast or how far or how accurately the planes went. They were simply happy to see planes flying. Again, it was something that most people in the world had never seen before. If someone made a short takeoff or dropped a plaster bomb on a fake battleship or set a speed record, well, that was just icing on the cake. Marginal weather plagued the meat for days, with most of the planes being grounded on the second day of flying. Cromwell Dixon decided to take advantage of the crowd's undivided attention and make an attempt to fly to the state house that day. Soon after takeoff, however, it became clear that there was something wrong. The Globe relates, Hardly had he begun to ascend above the tops of the big tents, however, before it was apparent to both Dixon and the onlookers that something was awry with the mechanism of the motor, for it began to skip and miss explosions. Dixon was seen to climb nimbly along the triangular framework beneath the big envelope and attempt to remedy the trouble. After some work, it was very evident that the difficulty required more than momentary attention, and as the balloon was rising rapidly all the time, Dixon vainly tried to work his rudder in such a way as to point the nose of the envelope into the southwest wind. By this time, the balloon had reached an altitude of about 100 feet, and it was obvious that both pilot and craft were fated for a long drift out over the water of the harbor, unless something was done immediately to alter the course of the runaway dirigible. The watchers below called out all sorts of instructions to the marooned air skipper, but of all those watching the course of the apparently helpless pilot, the latter possessed the coolest head. He skipped along the framework until he was actually poised at the very end of the structure and hung there for several seconds, clinging to the netting. Eventually. Dixon gave up on the mid-air repairs and managed to catch an air current that was heading over the airfield. He managed to drop a drag line, and his crew pulled the dirigible to the ground. Dixon did eventually manage a flight over the city, but his mid-air antics as he tried to repair his crippled airship on the second day may have overshadowed his more successful flights. The weather improved as the meet went on, and the aviators put on a great show. On the 9th, Glenn Curtis, Claude Graham White, and Wilbur Wright all made attempts on the Boston Light Course. Over the course of the week, Graham White made at least three flights to Boston Light. On the last scheduled day of the meet, he made one last attempt at the light, starting out after sunset in perfect weather and setting his course by the lighthouse's beacon and the lights of the Boston skyline. The Globe said that his graceful monoplane shot over the squantum headland across Quincy Bay straight for Boston Light, straight as a heron or a duck flies. He shaved about six minutes off his previous record at the 33-mile course, clenching the $10,000 Boston Globe Prize. Before September 13th rolled around, the scheduled end of the meet, two extra days were announced. The show had been a big hit, marred only by poor weather, Harmon's crash, and a fistfight on the field after the police detail tried to stop a pilot whom they didn't recognize from reaching his craft. The extra days would help make up for the poor weather at the start of the meet, so organizers paid the professional flyers a bonus to stay on. On these last two days, little serious competition was undertaken, though the aviators tried their hands at egg-dropping, and one demonstrated the art of shooting a rifle from the air. Uh, don't try that at home, especially not over a crowded urban airfield. It's interesting to note that during the course of the meet, daily coverage was carried in the sports section of the Boston Globe and other newspapers. Since the meet was competitive and had originated as an offshoot of college athletics, it seemed to make sense at the time. The sports section covered crew races, yachting, and the nascent sport of auto racing, so why not aero meets? Unfortunately, that means I've had to read a lot of Boston Globe's sports pages as I've been putting this episode together. And in the early 20th century, the Globe published an incredibly racist menstrual cartoon called Ace of Spades in Every Day's Sports Section so I've gotten much more exposure to that genre lately than I would ever prefer. At times, coverage veered off the sports page and into the arts and culture section of the newspapers. Popular enthusiasm for aviation was running high, and it inspired a number of artistic creations. Even before the meet opened, Boston Papers advertised a play called The Aviator at the Tremont Theater. On the last day of the meet, a poem was published in the Globe with a chorus that went, Aviating, aviating, or admiring crowds, the aero-car ascending far among the fleecy clouds, aviating, aviating, that's the sport for me, an aerial flight to Boston Light from Squantum-by-the-Sea. The next summer, a theater in Medford advertised a play called The Aero Girl, which was described as a suspicious wife a goody-goody husband, and the Arrow Girl are responsible for the story which is woven around the Harvard-Boston Arrow meet at Atlantic last fall. Still later, a junior at Quincy High School named Russell K. Green published a song he had written called Take Me Down to Squantum and Let Me See Them Fly. I get the feeling that it was not a great composition, but the Smithsonian has a copy of the sheet music, so we know that the chorus went, Take Me Down to Squantum, I Want to See Them Fly. Billy Hoff and Beachy flying round so high. We'll eat peanuts and popcorn and watch them in the sky. We'll ride down in a car or we'll walk it's not far if you'll take me to Squantum Field. Which doesn't even rhyme. The Aero Meet had an enormous cultural impact, but was it good business? After the Harvard Boston Aero Meet was extended due to popular demand, it officially closed on September 17th. The most highly awarded aviator and darling of the show was Englishman Claude Graham White, who took home a total of $22,100. At a formal banquet at the Algonquin Club, the Globe gave him a $10,000 check for winning the Boston Light Prize, and the Harvard Aeronautical Society gave him an additional $12,100 in smaller checks for taking first place in speed, getaway, and bomb dropping, as well as placing second at altitude, duration, and distance. All the checks were placed into the cup of a large silver trophy and presented to the aviator, who thanked everyone from the president to the humble citizens he'd met on the streets of Boston. In all, the club had earmarked $50,000 for prize money, not counting the $10,000 Boston Light Prize. A few weeks after the meet closed, the Harvard Aeronautical Society met at Pierce Hall and did a postmortem of the event. One of the most pressing orders of business was a careful examination of the meet's finances. Manager A.D. Claflin presided, announcing that the meet had included 48 hours of heavier-than-air flight, covering over 1,000 miles. They had admitted over 67,000 unique-ticketed spectators with $121,703 in revenue from ticket sales. Concessions and other sales resulted in about $6,500 or so in additional revenue. Unfortunately, almost $130,000 in revenue wasn't enough to allow the event to break even. They'd paid out over $40,000 in bonuses for their professional aviators, almost $60,000 in operating expenses, and they were left with about $30,000 in fixed assets, like improvements to the airfield. Unfortunately, that fall the airfield had to be regraded to try to raise it above the level of winter storm tides, and the grandstands had to be dismantled. The lumber was used for improvements at Harvard Stadium. When the dust cleared... The first Harvard-Boston Aero Meet was left with a deficit of $21,894.38. A little thing like a $22,000 debt, which would be almost $700,000 today, did nothing to dampen enthusiasm for the idea of Aero Meets. Almost immediately, planning began for a second Harvard-Boston Aero Meet to be held at Squanum again in late August 1911. And soon derivative events started popping up as well. While planning for the 1911 event was in the early stages, at least two other exhibitions of flying machines were scheduled. In May of 1911, the Harvard Aeronautical Society hosted a glider meet at Squantum. They constructed a 40-foot-tall tower that could be used to launch a glider, and clubs from colleges around the Northeast came to launch their non-powered machines. Even the nobles in Greenough, a private high school in Dedham, brought their own aircraft. Another event was put together in Waltham in July, with a dozen aviators flying back and forth between a field in Waltham and the automobile racetrack in Hyde Park's Reedville neighborhood. The main event, though, was the second Harvard-Boston Aero meet. The Harvard Crimson said, The second Harvard-Boston Aviation meet, which was held at the Aeronautical Society's field in at Atlantic from August 26th to September 6th, proved to be just as successful as that of last year, and served to demonstrate the remarkable strides that have been made in aviation during the past year. Weather was a problem, with wind and rain hindering flights on most days. The Crimson continues, Had the conditions been as good as might reasonably have been expected, there is little doubt that this second Harvard-Boston aviation meet would have been the most successful and sensational meet that has ever been conducted in this country. Yet, in spite of everything, one who saw the meet of last year could not have helped being greatly impressed with the enormous advance in the science of aviation in so short a period. The proof is in the pudding, though, and the balance sheet for the 1911 meet didn't paint a pretty picture. The losses were less than the previous year, down from $22,000 to just $11,000. That's only half the story, though, because the revenues were also way down. This time, they only brought in about $55,000. Ticket sales were down by over half, and the numbers might have looked even worse, but they did still have fixed assets, like the improved runways, trolley tracks, and roadways, that they didn't have to spend money on again. Nonetheless, A.D. Claflin put a good spin on things, saying, Of course, the weather handicapped us somewhat. But we still should have been able to make a better showing than is indicated by the figures, in view of all the publicity given to the meet and the prestige of our meet of last year. We at least had the satisfaction of having had the two large meets without having the shadow of a bad accident cast over our efforts. Sadly, that record would not hold for the third meet at Squantum in June and July of 1912. On June 29th, a brief wire story describes the first two flights piloted by women in New England. Miss Blanche Stewart Scott secured the distinction of being the first woman to fly an aeroplane in New England at the opening of the aviation meet in Squantum today. She used a biplane. Later, Miss Harriet Quimby made a half-hour's flight in a new monoplane. A photo taken by Herald Traveler photographer Leslie Jones on July 1st shows a man in shirt sleeves running through the waves at the water's edge with a body slung over his shoulder. A group of men runs to meet him. It's a beautifully composed snapshot, implying frenetic action, even in a static black-and-white photo. Leslie Jones was a heck of a photographer. The body is Harriet Quimby. While banking over the bay, she lost control of her Blériot monoplane. It went into a roll, and both Quimby and her passenger fell out, plunging a thousand feet to their deaths in front of a horrified crowd. After that, the 1912 aero meet was cut short. With their finances a mess, the Harvard Aeronautical Society disbanded later that year. Soon World War I broke out and the militaries of the world changed their minds and decided that planes could be useful after all. Many society members, as well as the pilots who had dazzled at Squantum, would volunteer to fly with the Allied powers. Some of them served with the Lafayette Escadrille, a unit of American pilots organized within the French Army. Back at Squantum Point, the airfield was abandoned for a few years, with a Hyde Park airplane engine manufacturer sometimes touching down there during testing. When the war started, the Massachusetts Naval Militia erected a small seaplane base on the sheltered Dorchester Bay side of the peninsula called the Massachusetts School for Naval Air Service. It served as a training ground for Massachusetts pilots for a few months, before the U.S. Navy took over both the seaplane base and the old Harvard Aviation Field in May of 1917. U.S. Naval Air Station Squantum only operated from May to September of 1917, training pilots in the basics of flight before they were shipped off to other facilities to finish training. After the Navy moved out their pilot training facilities in late 1917, the airfield at Squantum Point was again largely forgotten for a few years. In 1923, it opened as a Naval Reserve Air Station, again serving seaplanes. Then in 1929, an airstrip opened for the first time since the Harvard days. On the eve of World War II, the reserve base was activated, becoming Naval Air Station Squantum. Throughout the war, Squantum Point was used for Marine Corps and U.S. and British naval pilot training, but it also served as a home base for a number of active-duty squadrons. They flew anti-submarine missions patrolling New England coastal waters, long-range convoy escort missions, and they supported carrier-based squadrons as needed. After World War II was over, the base quickly became obsolete, and it closed in December of 1953. The last plane to officially take off from Naval Air Station Squantum, the old Harvard Aviation Field, was the commanding officer's twin-engine Beechcraft, as all the aircraft were transferred to the Naval Air Station at Weymouth. To learn more about Boston's 1910 case of aeroplane fever, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 144. We'll have lots of historic photos of the aeroplanes and dirigibles that took part in the 1910 Harvard-Boston Aero Meet. We'll also have diagrams of Squantum Point Airfield, and a map of the Boston Light Course. We'll link to stories in the Harvard Crimson, Harvard Magazine, lots of stories in the Globe, and some of the other sources we used in preparing this episode. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event, and the Race Underground, this week's Boston Book Club Pick. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about Boston's dark days and eclipses.